Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Winning Digital Customers podcast. Awesome guest today. I can't wait to introduce you to Kareen Roman. Kareen is currently the chief customer officer at MailChimp, a company that I'm guessing all of us in the audience are well aware of. Prior to that, she spent over seven years at LinkedIn, including as the global head of customer success. And prior to that was with a number of other companies, including Ziff Davis for a number of years, a real expert in the space of customer experience, customer success, and customer centricity. MBA from Columbia, and actually as I scroll through her LinkedIn profile, because she and I are our, our new friends as well, I see also a scuba diver, which is another one of my passions beyond customer centricity. So um, where's the best place you've scuba dived? Uh, my number one favorite diving location was uh, in Indonesia. It's called Raja Ampat. It was out of this world. It was the most beautiful uh, diving experience I've had. Fantastic. Well, I haven't been there. I, I did dive in Bali a number of years ago, which was also very, very beautiful. Yeah, we loved, our, we loved Bali too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. And is there anything you'd like to add to my quick intro of you there by way of giving our listeners a background on who you are and what your mission is? Well, to be honest, I went through your LinkedIn profile and I went through your various accomplishments and your webpage and I kept wondering, why am I not the one interviewing you? So thank you for, for, uh, for having me and I'm sure we'll get a, a great conversation. Wonderful. Yeah, well, I look forward to it. You're welcome to interview me anytime. <laughs> cool. So, well, I always wonder, those, those of us, and I think you and I are very like minds in many ways, who are really customer obsessed, why? What is it that led us? What, what made us that way? You know, because I, I don't find that everybody is that way. And I'm just curious, what, what, what do you think has made you, what do you even mean when you say, I love that you describe yourself as being customer obsessed, but what do you think that means? And, and, uh, and what, what inspired you to, to focus on that in your career? Sure, happy, happy to share. I think that, I mean, there's very few businesses that don't have customers. They don't last long, usually. <laughs> they, don't last, they don't last long, usually. So that's, uh, that's one thing. So understanding that in order to get business outcome, you need customers. And you need engaged and successful customers. Also, I'm a customer myself, and I know how the connection with a brand or an interaction with a brand will shape my loyalty or not with that brand. And third, I, mean, I started my career in sales, and that was back in the days, pre-LinkedIn, hardcore, yellow pages, you know, and cold calling and, and selling. and seeing all the motions to acquire customers and none of the motion to retain customers was, was really painful. So I think these three factors combined have shaped my, my affinity and my belief in making decisions with the customer in mind. Yeah. And, and you've worked for some very big companies, including where you are now. You know, sometimes when I talk about the idea of customer centricity, I play a little uh, clip from the, the show Cheers. I don't know. Now, I'm guessing from your accent, you probably didn't grow up in this country. 
So I don't know if you're familiar with the old TV show Cheers. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. So it's a show that was very popular when I was a kid, probably like in the 80s, but it's set in a bar. It's a comedy, you know, it's about the things that happen for all these people who go, the regulars who go to this bar. But a lot of people, certainly people who grew up in this country, know the theme song from the, from the show because in the song they sing, and I'm not going to try to sing it, but the song says, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, you know, and it's about your local neighborhood bar. And, uh, but I think this idea that, you know, there's something very intimate and empathic and, and personal about going to your local bakery or my wife goes to her local nail salon where they know her, where they've done her nails for years. But, you know, if you are working at a huge company, it's kind of hard to, or seemingly difficult to achieve the same level of customer intimacy as when, you know, you know the owner of your local restaurant and he can greet you when, when you come in. I don't know that the Amazon, the high Howard message at the top of the Amazon homepage necessarily gives me the same warm feeling that somebody who really knows me who comes and greets me. So I'm just curious, like, how do you, being that you're working in such large companies, how do you think about creating that sense of customer intimacy, customer centricity at that, at scale? That is a, such an important question, Howard. And it's the, we know that creating unique experiences and creating powerful moments and emotional connection leads to better engagement and, and retention. How do we do that at scale? That's the, that's the question I've been thinking a lot of. And I do believe that it's possible. And it's a combination of what you mentioned, Amazon. Amazon one was one of the first one to customize. You might also like this. LinkedIn does a lot of that. So there's, there's of course, data-driven mechanism and automation that can recreate some of that experience. The emotional connection has a human component that is difficult, but not impossible to scale. So let me give you a couple of, of examples. Great. Listening to our customers and our partners. It's part of my job. I can be busy or not. I will respond to any customer reaching out to me for solving problems or looking at opportunities or providing feedback. And I would proactively engage with customers and partners on a regular basis. Um, there is no notion of you're too small to deserve my attention. I would actually argue that for very small customers, we might be a huge cost to them compared to a very large companies. And some of our customers' business and success are dependent on our services. Mm -hmm. So it's like having that no one is too small to get their problems solved and the attention that they need to be successful. Sense of urgency, someone's business livelihood might be dependent on our services and a true, true empathy and compassion for our customers. So it's trying to like walk the walk of the customer. So you can personalize and create that emotion by small actions, sending a special greeting, uh, responding to any outreaches, sending a postcards, 
um, etc. So it is doable. It's not as scalable as the Amazon ecosystem, but it is doable. Yeah. No, I, I can feel your your passion and commitment to that as a mission to support those customers. I think a lot of the people who listen to this share that, and they also sometimes operate in environments where it's not shared by everybody. And so someone might say, no one's too small. I, you know, someone might agree with you, but might say, but my boss says, or my CFO says, well, you know, what's the total cost of the, what's the total value of that customer? You know, if that customer is paying us $39.99 a month, we can't spend two hours on the phone with them because that's our entire profit margin for three years or whatever else. And, and so how do, you, how do you fight that fight in an organization? Or, or is there some validity to that CFO's viewpoint who says, yeah, if, if our cost to serve that customer goes too high, then we're underwater with that customer. We can't, we can't be so focused on every customer. Is that a valid viewpoint? Or how do, you, how do you deal with that kind of pull in two directions of both wanting to sort of be a dollars and cents business-minded person and at the same time wanting to fulfill that mission of supporting every single customer? Totally. That's a great, that's a great question. And I think what you want is avoid that fight. And what I mean by uh, avoiding that fight is provide the product and service experience that reduce customer friction. And that is, is providing a great and seamless experience. Let me, let me give you an example. MailChimp has been around for 20 plus years and went through tremendous growth, right? The business has been valued at $12 billion, which is unprecedented. And with a handful of teams focusing on customer success or sales, which is mind-blowing. And the company went through that tremendous growth thanks to a, a product-led growth. The product that was built was solving for customer problems while limiting the need for handholding. So if you go you know, further up the funnel and provide that experience, then you don't have to look at trade-offs between servicing customers, cost, and scale. So there's a, a tremendous power of, as you scale your business and you have led with a, a product-led growth, you start adding uh, what's called a service-led growth where you look at the trade-offs and you make sure that the product experience for uh, free customers, for example, we have a lot of free customers. Uh, we were, I think, one of the first companies to go after freemium and free comes at a cost. So how do you partner with the product team and the uh, customer experience team and the marketing team and the engineering team and the list go on to make sure that the experience that we're providing doesn't require to stack up costly resources. So I would say like go further up so that you don't have to fight. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's, that's dead on. And I just build on that to say, then when you do wind up spending time of say an expensive person such as yourself, on the phone for two hours with a customer who's only paying you $30 a month, 
you make sure that that time isn't just to help that one customer, but it's a learning opportunity to say, wait a minute, what was the reason this customer needed so much handholding in this case? And how can I go back to the product and say, you know, what can we change so that next time someone doesn't need to spend two hours. And now all of a sudden that time you spent isn't just customer support, but it's essentially also customer research such that you can then use it to improve the product. I think that's, and I'm just building on, I think that's part of what you're saying as well, but I just wanted to point that out. I think that's, that's one way of looking at the time you spend with supposedly lower value customers that their highest value to you may be to teach you what you need to improve in your product. I love that. I love that whole word. And I make, I make a lot of data-driven decision. At the end of the day, a conversation with a customer or a partner, and I'm not talking about one, uh, but I'm not talking about millions either. Going to the source and getting that interaction with customers and partners, and I, I talk a lot about partners, which are marketing, freelancers, designer agencies that really empower small businesses and mid-sized businesses to, to use MailChimp. And the, the value of that feedback is absolutely scalable. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not an anecdotal conversation to your point. It's uh, how do I get market insights directly from the source and can amplify across the organization? I love it. Yeah, absolutely. I want to uh, go back to something you said earlier about the importance of the emotional journey and what a big impact that has on customer loyalty and, and I think overall business results. Can't get enough of winning digital customers? You can find even more content and video versions of the podcast episodes on our YouTube channel. Visit wdc.ht slash YouTube to subscribe. You've worked certainly for the last decade or so in business to business businesses. And I know there are some people who would think that that type of emotional connection is a more of a B2C thing, right? Oh, you're selling, you know, perfume or shoes or a luxury automobile. And of course, there's an emotional component. But when you're selling business services, whether it's LinkedIn, uh, which of course, LinkedIn sales are what to mostly recruiters or to people doing marketing or, you know, MailChimp, where you're again selling business services, essentially, this is, wouldn't this be more of a rational type purchase is this really so emotional? So of course, that's a very loaded question because I, I'm making it sound like it's a reasonable question, but actually I, I don't really feel that way, but I'm asking it that way because I'm really interested in the way that, that you respond to how you respond to people who, who don't understand why emotions would be so important in a business-to-business -business, business. Totally, and that, that's actually one of the observations that led me through joining MailChimp. Veilship is a B2B company that carries the power of the emissions of a B2C company, which is uh, pretty rare. And what I mean by that is the brand itself, that little Freddy monkey, is iconic. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that, that connections and these emotions exist is a variety of factor. Early on, the, the, the co-founders were very explicit about going after what we call the underdogs, empowering the underdogs. So we're talking about small businesses, and that was very intentional. And it was done with a very deep connection with all these entrepreneurs so it's certainly 
entrepreneurs talking to entrepreneurs. That's how you start building that connection. The fact that we explored and launched a freemium model was a true signal that we're in it to make small businesses win. And the corkiness of the brands uh, throughout the years, and that was way before my time, but I can see the, the success of uh, the brand and what the product design team has worked on and what the marketing team has worked on. And that's taking the impact we have on small businesses and communities extremely seriously, not taking ourselves seriously, and really showcasing our humanity and the people behind Milton. So, and, and if you, you mentioned LinkedIn, I remember from my days at LinkedIn, every time I would say, hey, I worked at LinkedIn, people would be like, oh, I love LinkedIn. So you're, you're seeing that, uh, that too. So it is absolutely doable. And we can see more and more uh, B2B companies understanding the power of emotional connection, sometime at a really hard cost. Right? Look at the cables and telephone company. Well, if you don't hate them, you're in hate with them. That's like basically because of the support or lack of. And so I think that it is, it is not like a, a fade where we're going to see this emotional connection between business to business brands. I think it's a real empowering and opportunity for B2B companies. I absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, I, I've been had the opportunity to be part of a lot of research across both B2C and B2B, but when doing ethnography or, or doing research interviews whatnot with, with B2B buyers, um, I've seen so much emotion, whether that's fear, so much fear. You know, if, what if I make the wrong choice? You know, will I get fired? How, how could this go wrong? Much more fear than I usually see around consumer products. I mean, if you buy a Honda and later you feel you should have bought a Toyota, you know, you're going to feel some regret. But if you buy the wrong, you know, phone system for your office uh, and everybody hates it, then, you know, you might be out of a job. And that's a much bigger, you know, personal impact. And on the flip side, when you, or, or, or if you rely on a vendor who's supposed to do something for you, whether it's emails or raw materials or whatever else, and you've made commitments to your customers, the value that you have to for those relationships. You know, I guess all I'm trying to say is like, once you start to really look at it at the ground level, you realize that business is very emotional. Whether you're a small business or whether you're working for a large company or whatever else, full of excitement and hope and, 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 and fear and disappointment and just as much, or I think even more than B2C. So I think this is a, a common misnomer. So I'm, I'm, totally, I'm totally with you. I think this is, a, this is huge, huge in this space and often overlooked. Yeah, I like I like the 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 parallel that you're making about it. Well, you're making decisions in a B two B environment. You're making decisions that can impact so much more than yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I love that. I love that yeah. uh, that point. Yeah, and and the space that you're in is really at the core of how a business connects with their customer at least one of the main channels by which they connect to their customer around email. So I, I could imagine a lot of emotion. Let's dive a little bit more on this issue of customer research, because I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, how do you, it seems like to me that it would be very important in a role like yours to make sure you really understand how your customers are feeling and what they love and what they're frustrated by and all that. What do you guys do at MailChimp 
to, to make sure you're keeping a finger on the pulse of the customer? A variety, a variety of, of different things. And um, the acknowledgement that we need to listen really hard to our customers came pretty early on. And um, so there's an entire CX department um, that looks at things like CSAT and NPS and market research and qualitative interviews and quantitative interviews. So there's a, a lot of capturing the feedback. I, I mentioned earlier, we have a, a partner network uh, that represents MailChimp on behalf of their customers. So it's like feedback times 10 or hundreds, like all condensed. So that's a true, that's a true gift. Customer experience work that we do, measuring social sentiment, a series of surveys, qualitative feedback, interaction with our customers. Can we do more? Yes. I do believe that when we look at our go-to-market motion, we can do more, we can do better. But it is it is hard for me to pinpoint like something that we do where we're like, eh, don't care about the customer, let's not collect feedback. Well, what's great then, let me ask you this as a follow-up, since you're doing so many different types of activities, which do you find are the most worthwhile? If someone said to you, budget cuts, you can only keep one method of customer research or keeping your finger on the pulse, which is the one that you think is giving you the biggest bang for the buck in terms of actionable insights for the cost or the level of effort? It's going to be the least scalable, but uh, meeting with customers and partners. Just like one-on-one -on -one conversations. That's the one I would definitely keep. I, I trust our customers and partners to to tell us what they need. So again, not scalable, but I don't need, I don't need 3000 meetings to get a good, a good sense of what we're doing really well and what we have, uh, what we have to improve. So that would be my, from my customer uh, role perspective, obviously, uh, someone in market research or CX or product might give a, a totally different answer. Yeah. That's great. And, you know, it makes me wonder, um, one of the things that I observe often is that some of the most valuable interactions, like you just described, the one-on-one -on -one interactions with customers that yield the greatest insight at companies are often the ones that are the least documented and shared. You know, we do a survey, we do an NPS survey, and we uh, send it out to a whole bunch of people, look at the numbers. But someone calls the call center and spends 20 minutes brain dumping and what happens with that information? In a lot of companies, the most valuable information is the least shared and the most general information is the most shared. And, I'm, and I've seen some companies, though, have practices in place to try to figure out if someone gleans an insight like that, you know, it goes someplace, right? Whether it's a tool like uh, Spigot or Bright Idea or one of these platforms, or I have one client that sends out customer, customer flashes, they say, and there's one person who's responsible for it. And if you speak to a customer and you get an insight, you give it to them and they condense it down to just like three or four sentences and they send it out as an email to this group of people. It's not very high tech, right? It's just one person. It's someone's assistant who does it. But the point is just make it short, send it out. And it's like, hey, we spoke to a customer today and this is what we heard. And it's just about keeping that voice. It's just about amplifying and echoing a little bit that voice when you hear it. So anyway, it's just one thing that I've heard. But I'm curious, do you see anything going on either at MailChimp or other companies that you've worked? I'm always looking to mine guests for tips they've seen. What works, you know, in the, in the real world to, to make sure that those, when you speak to customers, 
that the insight that comes from those conversations is leveraged across as many people within the organization that may find it actionable as possible. I love this question and I haven't seen it done really well. I've seen a lot of these like Google Doc with notes. Uh, I've seen you know, product customer support, monthly meeting. So I haven't, I haven't seen it done so beautifully that I'm like, wow, this is the model that I'm going to go after. Obviously, I haven't talked to, to every company around. So there needs to be a data democratization where these, what I call these gold nuggets from uh, frontline people are being shared beyond a, a JIRA ticketing system. And so there's the, there's the, the what we call um, the customer care function, which is, hey, I have a problem. Can you help me solve it? And there's the more customer success proactive function, which is a, uh, I think uh, you can grow with us more than, uh, than you're doing. I think you should use that functionality. Have you thought? So these are, I'm going to simplify, like reactive, proactive. And I think we have an ability to align these two and transform a, I have a problem help me solve it to, I can absolutely solve it. What else do you need? What else do you want to share? And close that loop with product engineering and, and CX and marketing, et cetera. So data democratization. So first having the right tools. Download the first chapter of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance today. Visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to get started. And most often than not, teams use different tools. And tools are reflective of org design more so than customer outcome. So I believe that to do it well, you need the systems and tools to be shared and aligned across all the, the different teams, right? And it's not, oh, the engineering team uses this, the product team uses that, the support team uses this. So that's where I would, I would start with like data democratization uh, so that this, you know, that conversation with that, with that customer can like be tagged in a certain way and then the inside be, uh, be compiled and then et cetera, et cetera. It's not easy. Yeah, totally agree. And, you know, like call center data can be such a, such a treasure trove. I feel like it's one of the most underutilized assets for customer insight, aside from the individual customer support. Yeah, actually, I had a, I had a, a, a chat with our uh, chief product and design officer um, a few, few days ago. So, um, so we have new executive on the team and they've been participating in a program that is uh, like shadowing what the the customer care experience is, so they can be not in the queue. You need to be you need a series of different skills and training to be in a queue, but they can be shadowing one of our uh, one of our reps. And 
after uh, after uh, the session with uh, one of our reps, they're like chatting with me like, holy shit, that was so good. <laughs> how can I do more? How can I see more? How can my team? And so there is no, and there is no doubt that this is, that's not like golden, uh, golden information. It needs to be democratized. Yes. It's, it's so, it's so valuable. We tend to generalize. That's how, how our brains work, you know, and then eventually people develop a general idea of the customer. And then you get to sit and listen to a bunch of customers in a call center and you see the diversity and you see the reality of what they're dealing with. And it's, it's makes it, it's like going from black and white to color TV or something. I think it's, uh, it's hugely valuable. I'll tell you one quick story. I, 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 I interviewed one guest from a major retailer and I'm, I'm blanking on, I'm trying to remember which of two it is. So I won't say the name of it, but it was uh, on an earlier podcast. And he was talking about how in their uh, company to try to get more executive focus on the voice of the customer, they take call center recordings and they curate 30 minutes of it every week. So they'll pick sometimes snippets from different calls that illustrate different issues that customers are calling in about. And then I love this part. They have a weekly meeting for only 30 minutes with most of the top executives. And the whole meeting is everyone sits down and they hit play and they play 30 minutes of these recordings. Just they're all edited together. And then the meeting's over and everybody leaves. And there, no one's allowed to talk. There's no discussion. There's no solutioning. There's no explanation. That's it. We just listen to the customer for 30 minutes and then we leave. And of course, there's all kinds of conversations in the hallway afterwards about, did you hear that? And what should we do about this, that? But I think that's just brilliant. Just forcing everybody to spend 30 minutes a week listening to the voice of the customer. Um, and they said it was just a fantastically, and they loved it. And people would sit there and they would be laughing and they would be cringing. You know, it's almost like watching a soap opera, listening to these calls. You know, it's not boring at all. You'd think like, oh my God, listening to 30 minutes of call center recordings, that sounds horrible. It's not. It's gripping. And sometimes an emotional roller coaster, right? When you hear what people call in about and stuff, you know, how could they say that about our product and what happened? And they received the product. How? Who screwed that up? How could that have happened? How could they have received a, you know, a doll with two heads or whatever, you know? Love that. I actually, yeah, I actually wrote it down. <laughs> Thank you. The, the first thing you want to do is that ensure that your customers have easy access to your customer care team or your sales team or your customer success team. And, and that's not the case. Um, that's the premise is that let, let, let me make it easy to, to talk to us, which, you know, for scale and cost reasons, it's often hidden for sure. Well, not to mention, speaking of the world of email, how many emails do you get? Sometimes even they're like customer surveys that come from the email box, you know, do not reply at, company.com every time I see that I think oh geez like you know and I know nobody sat there and like I mean I know there's all there's technical reasons they don't have a way to deal with but but it's just like at a fundamental level don't do that you know don't reach out to your customers for their feedback from an email box that says do not reply in the in the address name like you know I hope MailChimp doesn't do that <laughs> I'm gonna check that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might it's very common. Um, anyway, so one last thing I wanted to, I was curious if you had any insights on, um, given all the customer research that you do, um, is COVID. And uh, I just did a, a, a live cast today about retail trends and how retail shopping patterns have been, of course, massively changed by COVID and e-commerce use and online pickup and store and things like that. I don't have an uh, off the top of my head intuition about how people's marketing and, and email sending uh, and other services that you guys provide was impacted. But when you do customer, but I, but one of the things I tell customers all the time, my clients, I mean, is 
whatever customer research you did before COVID, you might want to just set it aside because the customers have changed so much in general as a result of all these forcing factors of COVID that you need to take a fresh look at your customers. Some things may be the same, but so much has changed that you can't really rely on any pre-COVID research. And I'm just curious, are there any patterns or trends that you've seen as you've looked at continuous customer feedback and insight and data? What are you seeing from customers today or over the last, you know, 18-ish months or whatever it's been that it has been a shift since pre-COVID? Acceleration of uh, digital presence. Some more traditional uh, retail companies had to pivot and accelerate embracing digital tactics and techniques. Integration of several components of doing business online, right? So setting up appointments, payment, automation, building websites, creating landing pages, all of these things that could kind of live in separate worlds needed to be more connected than in the past. And the, the last thing, which may be serving me more so than the trends, uh, is the the necessity to be there more so for our customers than not, and that's customer service, and that's but everything that we talked about, um, which is. I'm going to be less less patient and more demanding through my experiences as I have more and more digital experiences. So it's a little bit like raising the bar mm -hmm. uh, and go like beyond a service or a product and after an experience. That's a little bit. That's not data driven. That's that might be that might be my wish. Qualitative, <laughs> not quantitative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it makes me think something a, a guest on uh, the other day commented on is um, we were talking about with COVID, this whole area of empathy, which you were just talking about, um, people are hungry for it, I think. And again, I have no data for this, but because uh, COVID has been so dehumanizing because we go into a store and everyone's wearing a mask. We can't see their face. They want us to stay six feet away from us. You know, there's this this fundamental quality, especially in the physical world of COVID, which, which creates more distance. And so people have unmet needs, that, therefore, especially in, in their commercial, you know, whether they're, I know, of course, MailChimp serves businesses in both B2B and B2C. So, you know, your customers' customers, they're looking for even more empathy, I think, through digital channels because they're not getting as much of it through non-digital channels because of these, you know, no criticism of any of the rules. I'm just saying there's a consequence, which is if you can't get close to people and you can't see their face, you're not going to feel the same kind of human connection. I think that's an inevitable outcome. Well, great, great. It's been, uh, you know, uh, wonderful to have you on, Kareen. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, any any final thoughts you want to share or any place you want to send people? Uh, I don't know if you have... Uh, 
any blog or content or other things that you want to promote. But if there's any place people want to hear more of your your thoughts and insights or MailChimp's thoughts and insights about uh, the world that we live in and the digital world, wh where would you want them to go? For MailChimp, we have uh, a lot of great content posted on our website. Uh, we have fun content. We have thought leadership. We have benchmark studies for entrepreneurs. There's a, a series of amazing content. So I would encourage uh, to go to MailChimp.com. As far as I'm concerned, I would never uh, encourage anyone to hear more of my uh, French accent. So I uh, have nothing to promote here, <laughs> but I appreciate <laughs> You automatically sound more sophisticated and worldly as a, as a result of having a, a French accent. Maybe why I left France to come here. <laughs> but I appreciate it. It was a, such a pleasure and an honor to be a, on your podcast. I'm a real, I've been listening to podcasts from the very early days and I, I get a lot of hearing from stories and from leaders and communities and any type of stories and love what you're doing. Thank you for uh, giving a lot of people a voice and reminding us that um, with this pandemic, our compassion uh, needs to be elevated uh, to cater for everyone around us. Really, really appreciate that. Well, Corinne, thank you so much for being here. And uh, thanks to all of you for watching and listening the Winning Digital Customers podcast. I look forward to seeing you next time. And until then, keep transforming. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Winning Digital Customers, the podcast. Find more great episodes at wdcpodcast.captivate.fm on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen. And visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to learn more about the Wall Street Journal bestselling book that inspired the podcast.